Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and today I'm doing a recap of how pharmacy was discussed in the fourth Democratic primary debate. One thing I kind of thought was interesting was pharmacy seemed to be a common talking point in this, whether it was Andrew Yang, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, pretty much every candidate talked about healthcare, and they had definitely talked about pharmacy in some of those. So I want to kind of go in and a little deeper dive with some of their comments today. And I do have some quotes on this episode as well. So kind of loop those in throughout. So we'll start with uh, Andrew Yang here, and here's what he had to say. They see a self-serve kiosk in every McDonald's, every grocery store, every CVS. The fourth industrial revolution is now migrating from manufacturing workers to retail, call centers, transportation, as well as to white collar workers like attorneys, pharmacists and radiologists. It does not care about our party. As you can see, uh, Andrew Yang really does start off right away talking about pharmacists. He talks about how automation and uh, basically those type of computer programs are coming for the jobs of pharmacists and lawyers uh, specifically. He says automation is definitely going to impact them, and this is a really big uh, concern to me, obviously. I see this as kind of the way that the retail front is moving more and more, but I also see it as a good thing. Uh, I see with pharmacists in our background that this could actually free us up a lot to actually sit there and discuss with patients their medications, help provide better education for them. I do see that this could majorly impact pharmacy technicians, which I hate to say that since we just celebrated their day for National Pharmacy Technician Day. Uh, and this is Pharmacist Month, so that's kind of why I thought this was an interesting time to discuss this and the way that they discussed it in the uh, in the debate, probably not even realizing that. But I do feel that you know, with the automation, that this is really a chance for pharmacists to step up and show our value. We're already kind of seeing that with the way some the insurances are moving to star ratings and how well our patients stay adherent to their needed medications for certain things, such as statins, diabetic meds, and blood pressure medications, since those are three of the biggest ones that help keep people uh, out of the hospital and those ERs and those kind of traumatic, really expensive uh, uses of healthcare. The thing I thought that was interesting about Andrew Yang was that he kind of is sitting here saying automation is going to really move pharmacists are really going to wipe us out. But I think that that's a huge thing that he may or may not realize how much the shift has already been in pharmacy away from the retail counting and dispensing type of processes. There's really more of a, through the past decade or so, moving pharmacists to more clinical roles, such as in ERs. Uh, there's states like Idaho that we talked about with uh, uh, Jennifer Adams last time on my podcast here, where pharmacists are really become that point of care in many situations in many states, whether they're prescribing things like birth control or they're helping provide those acute needs for that some of the, the basic urgent care roles might be, if you will. So I thought that was pretty interesting that he kind of called that out. But as he's calling that out, we're already seeing that shift happen a lot since retail is uh, cutting back on hours. There's less jobs available and even cutting back significantly on the starting pay rate for pharmacists in those type of fields. Seeing a big drop in that sort of uh, in the field that I really grew to know and love and work in pharmacy. in. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Andrew Yang really uh, kind of leading on that front. But I thought that was very interesting of him to bring that up. On next, this was kind of one that I did not hear many people talk about whatsoever, but I thought was huge in the way we're going to discuss pharmacy and addiction and opioids moving forward. And you can actually see this on her page, but Amy Klomashar actually talked quite a bit about the idea of taxing opioids at a rate of two cents a milligram. 
Now, she didn't necessarily say opioids. She said pain medications. I kind of just made that inference given that they were talking previously about opioids and addiction. And I think that's a pretty safe bet. When you look at her um, website, amyklobuchar.com, you see quite a bit that makes reference to opioids, addiction, mental health services, and kind of ties this right in there and even calls out this two-cent tax plan. I wanted to sit here and talk a minute about how I really felt that, although Andrew Yang was kind of a little bit, I feel off in his discussion since pharmacy is moving away from some of the, what can be the automated services currently, but this really shows to me that Amy Klomachar doesn't really understand exactly what she's talking about when it comes to pharmacy and some of these other uh, mental health and addiction type of things. Now, she does have addiction that runs in her family. Her dad was an alcoholic, which I do understand that that is a struggle and something that's probably very close and personal to her. But when she says she's going to talk tax medications at two cents a milligram, I kind of dove into this a little bit and really said, hey, this didn't make any sense to me right away. And one of the things that I kind of want to call out was this, this actually may be a regressive tax. As people who are already in pain are going to feel literally the most pain from this tax. She said two cents a milligram. So I'm going to take her at her words for this and assume that she's aiming at pain medications. And looking at that tramadol, which is one of our weaker opioids, being taxed at two cents a milligram and the smallest dose being 50 milligrams a pill would mean that there's a dollar tax on every tablet of tramadol. So if you have a patient who comes in and gets 90 a month taking three times a day, or if you are a patient who takes you know three tramadol a day, that means you're essentially going to be paying $90 a month in tax on that prescription. And tramadol can go much higher as well. Tramadol has some ER doses that can get up to 300 milligrams. So you're telling me there's going to be a $3 tax on just that one pill. That's huge. That's going to be, or I'm sorry, a $6 tax on that pill. That's huge. That's a huge tax just for something that's not really the strongest medication and not the one that really led us down this path of addiction to opioids such as Percocet and some of those other uh, oxycotton and oxycodone derivatives really did. Which again, if you're looking at oxy, oxycotton up to the 80 milligram tablets, that's quite a substantial tax that that person can be hit with every month. And yet some of the stronger opioids, like I said, oxycodone and hydromorphone aren't, are going to be taxed as little as four cents per tablet. When you compare hydromorphone to tramadol, hydromorphone we all know is way stronger and yet it's going to be taxed significantly less. I think this is an area that she's going to want to either heavily reconsider or reformulate the way she wants to do this because it's it's just clearly not right. The other thing I thought was interesting was I wonder how she's going to do this. I didn't I saw where there was some things mentioned that she would not do this to cancer patients. So I'm wondering if how she's going to levy this tax because I have no way of separating my pain medications of say Percocet or Tramadol for cancer patients versus non-cancer patients or patients with chronic back pain. But she, that's what she's referring to in this. Is she also going to separate addiction out in there? Because Suboxone, which is used to treat addiction is technically have, it does technically have an opioid in it with the buprenorphine. And that's again, 16 cents tax per dose for the most common dose, which is eight milligrams slash two milligrams. since that's a combo drug with naloxone. And I thought that was pretty interesting because how are we going to separate this? Are we going to separate the addiction out now? Are we going to separate cancer medications out for pain? What about hospice? Hospice goes through a lot of opiates as well, but those tend to be liquid. Are, are we taxing liquid at the same same rate of two cents per milligram? On our website, it does mention tablets, but again, liquid would get around that somehow if you follow that by the by the exact verbiage. And I thought that was pretty interesting. To me, it really showed a lack of a uh, of understanding how pharmacy works and what's very common in pharmacy to her on, on her campaign. And another thing I thought of too was, you know, since she's referring to opioids, 
what are exactly is included in that? Is loperamide going to be included? That's not a pain medication, which is how she refers to it, but technically it works on the GI tract on the opioid receptors. So I, I was kind of wondering, are we going to tax over the counter medications now? How are we going to do this? So kind of some back of the uh, back of the napkin math here. I figured that the minimum that her tax plan would bring in would be 1.45 billion with a B billion dollars a year based on what the current DEA prescribing habits are. Uh, I did see some different data on some of these, but I preferred to use the DEA ones. It was a little higher than what we saw with some of the other websites, but nonetheless, I kind of said, hey, the DEA has to track this. That's what I'm going with. So we have been seeing over 40 million prescriptions for tramadol every year. In fact, it was, I think, 41 million in 2017. 2018 data I did not see as of yet, at least a final number, but I did see some rough estimates. So if we had 40 million tramadol prescriptions a year, assuming that they're only the 50 milligram dose and that each prescription is only written for 30 tablets. So as conservative as possible, I went with this to make it as low of numbers as I could. That's tramadol alone would bring in $1.2 billion in tax revenue, which is to me kind of odd because of how just low it is for the strength of opioids. It's very, it's not very strong compared to like your oxycodones or what have you, obviously. And again, that's a very low estimate and not assuming that some of the tablets and the less common doses can up to 300 milligrams per, per tablet. And then obviously if you have, you know, one of those a day, that's quite a bit more than the 50 milligrams. Some of the other math I thought was interesting was oxycodone would bring in roughly $165 million. So it's bringing in almost one tenth of what tramadol would bring in given how much smaller the dose is. Now I again, I did this assuming 30 tablets per prescription and I rounded up to five and a half milligrams per tablet since we do see a lot more commonly the 10-325 or 10 milligram oxycodones or even 15 milligram tablets. So I rounded up a little bit, but either way, that would still bring in a lot less than what tramadol would if you're dosing it per milligram. And another one with the same assumptions of about five and a half milligrams per average dose and 30 tablets per prescription, hydrocodone would actually bring in roughly $264 million a year. Now, again, these are conservative and I will kind of do that intentionally going rounding down the numbers of how many was pre were prescribed since we're seeing that trend already in effect a little bit, but also rounding down for the lower dose so that, you know, we didn't look at a, a high side of this. All these numbers could easily triple. I just want to call that out right now. I did a low ball estimate, but these numbers could all easily triple. I know if you're a pharmacist like I am, you commonly see people who are taking five hydrocodone a day, six Percocet a day, and that's how the doctors are prescribing it for a long time. And again, this isn't counting some of your higher doses of these or your delayed release versions like Oxycontin 80 milligrams or your Zohydro for the hydrocodone. So again, I think this is really a big call on Amy Klobuchar's plan. And it was something that I'm not seeing mentioned in any of the headlines was that she really wanted to tax opioids from everything I can infer from what she said and what's on her website. But the way she has it, it's almost regressive and some of the lower, less potent opioids might actually have a higher tax. So I'm interested to see how she how she's going to handle that and how she's going to change that. And I know she said she wants it to go to mental health addiction, but I think it's pretty interesting that we're going to literally put a pre almost like a preemptive tax on people for a problem they may have. Now she said that this is going to go to the drug manufacturers, but I think we all know from I guess Reaganomics or what have you, anytime you tax somebody early in in the chain for the, a business model, it will trickle down. It will trickle down to the middlemen, to the other middlemen, and then eventually to the consumer. 
So that's one of my next concerns was I couldn't exactly find out how she was levying this tax other than she said it would be put on the pharmacy, pharmaceutical manufacturers. And to me, this matters because PBMs seem to always find a way to pass their payment onto the pharmacy or onto the patient or onto the insurance since they are usually the middleman in pharmacy claims and processes. And I thought that this would be interesting because it's only a two cents per milligram, but are we going to have to distinguish right away? Again, are they on cancer? Are they not on cancer? Are we going to be penalized if there's a wrong, we put in that it is for cancer and it's not or vice versa. And so usually PBMs are very, very, very good at finding ways that they can kind of pass this on. Now they could also use this to say, hey, we're paying pharmacies more because of their dispensing this, this, and this. And they also claw back some of their payments as we've seen them do with some other models around the country. And again, I'm not trying to entirely hate on PBMs here, but this is something that we are commonly seeing from them as the middleman on this. So I really see that this tax could be a way that they could actually help cut payments to pharmacies for services that we're providing for people who are in pain. And that could be a huge, a huge reason why pharmacies might just stop dispensing this type of stuff. And you might see these large swaths of people who can't get their medication. Now, I know it might not seem like the biggest thing in the world, but considering that there was, I think in 2017, 191 million prescriptions for opioid pain medications, two cents per milligram adds up quite a bit when almost every dose is at least five milligrams and a large swath of those are even 50 milligrams. That's a huge number that could all of a sudden trickle into the government's through Klobuchar's plan. And that's why I'm spending so much time on this. I could really see PBMs passing these costs along, raising prices, raising co-pays, what have you, and then just turn around and blaming it on the government. We see that time and time again when Obama was in office or when Bill Clinton tried to change healthcare. Every time something changes in healthcare, someone gets blamed for it. And a lot of times it's the government because they're the ones who are implementing some of these changes. Whether that's fair or not, we can have that debate, but that's one big call I want to have with this plan. I actually think her intent here to help treat opioid use disorder is an addiction is awesome. I have no problems with that. I'm just worried about the implementation of what she's trying to do and how these issues arise and how they kind of pass these pass these costs on to people who actually might not be addicted or may never develop addiction. Although we do know roughly 8-12% of people who are prescribed opioids do develop addiction, we can't pinpoint 8-12% to of people to tax ahead of time. So I really feel like that if this did raise the cost of pharmaceuticals, that you would see more people going to the street drugs because they're cheaper. We've already seen this happen with the cost of uh, Oxycontin going through the roof in Appalachia and people turning back to heroin just because it's cheaper. And that to me is actually where it gets dangerous and that you start seeing people who start messing with these street drugs that can be laced with fentanyl from places like China and now they're ODing. That's, that's kind of the circle of this situation. If we're going to make pharmaceuticals more expensive, this could really help drive more people to the street drugs, which are the ones they're generally overdosing on, which also Andrew Yang brought up a very good point too about uh, decriminalizing opioid use or small amounts of opioid use and the addiction and kind of getting more people out of our prisons. That's a whole nother ball game that is a, its own episode by itself. Maybe I'll do it at a later date. But I did think that it kind of dovetailed with this very nicely. I really feel like Amy Klobuchar's tax on opioids and pain medications and raising the cost of these could really then spin off into Andrew Yang's plan of decriminalizing this. If those went hand in hand, I could actually see how that works because now if we're going to decriminalize the small amounts on hand, we get people out of jail and we're raising money to help treat their addiction. Okay, that makes a little bit of sense. But at the same time, we, do, we the whole point is to get people off this stuff. So we don't want that circle. So I could really see where this can get a uh, 
kind of messy quick, if you will. I feel like this two cent tax plan could really end up causing more problems in the long run because there's a lot of documentation issues with it. And it could really force people towards more of those street drugs again, because if you're getting, you know, a hundred Percocet or a hundred Tramadol every month, that adds up. And is your insurance going to pay for that tax? We don't know. There's no mandates or there's no real spell out in her plan for any of that. And so that's what kind of has me worried with some of this and why I'm spending a lot of time on it. But go look it up. She actually mentioned it as I believe people were clapping later in the debate. I couldn't find a good audio clip of it, so I couldn't include it here just because the way CNN had it on their website, it made it really hard for me to pull that. But just something to think about here. Some of her past, to call uh, Amy Klobuchar out a little bit on this, she's always talked about pharmacy and pharmaceuticals, but she was actually one of the key cogs in the Affordable Care Act under Obama for making sure that the medical device tax was repealed and taken off because Minnesota has a lot of medical device companies in her state. And so whether she's just protecting her constituents and she would do that as president or not, I don't fully know. But it's kind of interesting to me that she's always attacking one part of the healthcare industry and not another. And again, in Minnesota, you got the Mayo Clinic up there. Huge, huge, huge chain for uh, healthcare providers in America. Very well respected, but she hasn't t- really haven't seen her do much on that aspect. She's been going after the pharmaceutical industry, and I feel like a lot of that has to do with just what's in her home state and how she's protecting herself so that if she does drop out of this race for whatever reason, she can still make a Senate run and point that good old finger back at, hey, look what I did for you guys. So with that, we're going to move on to the, the huge topic here. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren as well as several other Democrats, have all embraced the Medicare for All. So here's Bernie's quotes on that. Let's be clear. Under the Medicare for All bill that I wrote, premiums are gone. Copayments are gone. Deductibles are gone. All out-of-pocket expenses are gone. We're going to do better than the Canadians do, and that is what they have managed to do. At the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of people will save money on their health care bills. But I do think it is appropriate to acknowledge that taxes will go up. All right. So as you can hear right there, I actually agree with Bernie. I love the intent here. I really think that universal health care and making sure that no one's turned away is, is an awesome idea, but it is costly. And I actually really will have to give Bernie some props here. He totally went and admitted that this will raise taxes for pretty much everybody. But he does feel that, obviously, the way his plan, and from what I've read in the past, the more money you make and the for corporations or people, the more you're going to pay in taxes of this to help offset those costs. So what he's saying is that middle class people and on the lower end will still end up saving money while the people at the top end up burdening a lot more of that cost. But there's one thing about his plan that actually has me worried. He says that there will be no co-pays, no out-of-pockets. Basically, everything's going to be free is my understanding of it. And under previous bills, and again, going back just to recent history, under the Affordable Care Act, a lot of small things like this went right. We improved access to health care. We slowed the accelerating costs, which I do feel if we went to a single-payer system, we would be able to control those costs a lot quicker. But emergency room visits still continue to rise under the Affordable Care Act, which was kind of a thing that they were trying to get away from since emergency room visits are the most expensive form of health care. With the Affordable Care Act, the Medicaid expansion is a lot of what pushed this because now people had access to a form of health care they didn't previously have access to. And through the Medicaid expansion, a lot of those people weren't charged copays. They can walk right in. It's zero. It's covered. And it's, it's funny to me because working in retail pharmacy, I see a lot of people who come from ERs directly with their prescriptions to get filled. 
Now, there are some people, broken bones, they had to get something reset, they dislocated their shoulder, they got attacked by a hive of bees, something they hit by a car, what have you. The true visits that are worthy of emergency room. But I also see a lot of people who had the sniffles, maybe had a little case of the flu and they're 30 years old and it wasn't that bad. I see a lot of people who come in with Debrox, and an earwax cleaning product, because they had too much wax in their ears and it wasn't actually an ear infection. I think that that's one thing that Medicare for All would really have to do to keep these costs under control is have to defer people to primary to less expensive options of primary care outside of the ER. One thing we're currently facing is a lack of primary care physicians. We also have a lack of urgent cares that are open 24-7. Again, I, I live and work in Cleveland. It's a bigger city. It's not New York City or anything like that. But we don't. I can't think of an urgent care that around me that's 24-7, but I can think of a lot of emergency rooms that are. And so that's one example of, hey, if it's late night, people are going to go there. It's going to help drive up costs. And they're going to go there because if there's no copayment for it, they have no repercussion for going. I'm not saying that the poor people should have to pay more or have to pay copays for their their deductibles or their emergency rooms, but I think we need to make sure that with the current culture America has of I don't care, I'm just going to do this and somebody else is going to foot the bill. I'm going to get my money's worth out of it or my pound of flesh out of my taxes. That's something that would have to drastically change for Medicare for all to work. I know even in Canada, in fact, I was just talking with a Canadian friend about this last weekend. That's something that, you know, if you need those type of services, you may have to wait. They will definitely, I don't want to say ration care, but help make sure that they recognize what is handled in the right process. And they do pay a lot more in taxes for that sort of thing. We pay it insurance premium. So I guess, you know, tit for tat, it's going to go one way or the other. But again, that's a lot that the government's going to have to handle and have to handle right in a Medicare for all type system. The other thing I find interesting about Medicare for all is there's going to be a lot more people that work for the government. In fact, I think Amy Klobuchar mentioned that, uh, to give her some credit back a little bit, that a lot of people don't necessarily want to work for the federal government in this debate. And I think that's a very good point because if you look at how many how many pl- things we have to go in effect and move to get Medicare for all, it's basically eliminating the whole private insurance industry. So currently I think CVS Caremark, as much as we talk about them in pharmacy, is I think the Fort- Fortune 2 company. I think they're only behind Walmart in total size. So that company would be completely dismantled from the since they're with Aetna. The Aetna part would be dismantled. The PBM part, I'm sure, would be dismantled with that. We'd see all these PBMs probably go away or to a lesser extent move to like a government-controlled entity to help control costs. And all these insurances would too go away. So you have United Healthcare, you have Cigna, you have, I mean, you name it, Humana. All those would have to go away and all those people are going to need jobs somewhere. So you're losing major, possibly losing major tax revenue streams and then having to offset that with the, the way the government has to ration it. So I don't exactly see, I know Bernie's pointed out before this, his plan pays for itself, but I, I can't see that. or I don't believe it's going to fully work that way. Just again, on my back of the napkin math, there's so many moving parts to make this work. It's hard for me to quantify it. So until I see a CBO thing come out exactly stating, Hey, here's where jobs are going to be lost. Here's where we're going to be gained. Here's how we're going to move it all around. I don't really know if I can, I can go, go in all in on this plan because of that. But as a pharmacist kind of moving on here, and again, uh, Dr. Adams talked about this in the last podcast, we're the most accessible healthcare providers. If we do go to Medicare for all plan, this could be a major point where we could really step up and have to provide a lot more services, such as the urgent care type of services, basic skin care, acne care type of things, prescribing birth control, adding, re- adding refills to medications so people who can't get into their doctor can still be seen, picking medications that are the 
optimal drug of choice or are the less expensive option and will still work for that patient, as well as helping manage chronic disease states like high blood pressure, diabetes, and things like warfarin dosing, or again, she mentioned CLIA tests, things you can do at home or with very minimal uh, invasiveness that pharmacists can help manage and take that burden off the primary care, off the ERs, off the urgent cares. So I kind of, again, this is the part that brings me back to liking this is that I really feel like pharmacists could really step in here and make a big difference in something like Medicare for all, but I'm just worried about how it all gets paid for. I think that's a major worry with this. It's one that's called out repeatedly by Biden. It's also called, out, I think, by Kamala Harris. Uh, Judge definitely called it out. I'm, I'm actually a big fan of his because he seems to be pretty rational in this with some of the options he's presented. But I really think that that's one of the big things with Medicare for All is the cost issue. But as a pharmacist, I feel like we could also step in and provide a lot of those services. And I know some people might say, hey, you know, conflict of interest, you're looking at this as a way to make money. But I'm looking at a way to quote uh, Jennifer Adams to practice to the maximum of my education as opposed to the, the limits of my license. So I, again, I'm kind of on the fence with this, but I think it's a good call out here with uh, looking at Medicare for all from the pharmacy standpoint, which I don't think a lot of people always discuss it from per se. So uh, with that, if you really enjoyed this podcast, please drop a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening on. It helps people find my show. If you have any questions or you have a topic you really want to talk about with some of these upcoming debates, I'm going to try and do this little pharmacy recap after them whenever I can, as long as they're talking about pharmacy and healthcare, which I'm sure they will consistently here. Send me a message at political pharmacist, political pharmacist at gmail.com or leave a, leave a review with some comments or hit me up on any of the social media platforms. My Twitter, Twitter handle is at political underscore Rx and I'm on Facebook at political pharmacist and Instagram at political underscore Rx as well. Thanks for listening to the political pharmacist podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. <laughs>